Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This morning we'll look at verses 5 to 8. James 1, verse 5 to 8. You know, some of the most precious times we have with our children are when they're very young. We may never again lavish good things on them like we do during those years. And at the same time, we may never enjoy their undivided love and affection like we do in those early years. In those early days, we are everything. Mom and Daddy know everything. They can do anything. As we lavish our affection on our children, it's returned with wide-eyed, simple devotion. Oh, it's good that our children grow up and become more independent, and we teach them to do for themselves, and uh, sometimes we have to stand by and force ourselves to not interfere while they make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. And it's inevitable that they will discover other people, and their love and affection for us will be more reserved and less exclusive. All that's good, I guess, but I know I miss the early days. I bring all this up because as I study this text and think about these wonderful truths, again, I I'm reminded that our relationship to God really is like our relationship with children in those early days when they're just little tykes. You see, he is so infinitely great and powerful, and we are so far from being his equal that our relationship to him should always retain that childlike character. He lavishes on us everything we need and we love and trust him with wholehearted, simple devotion. The kind of thing we see in a child's eyes. Let's look at this wonderful passage and see if you don't agree that that's the picture. We'll come back to that. Verse 5. <clears throat> the context here is the trouble. Consider pure joy when you face troubles of all kinds, it says in verse 2. Because God working all these things in this so that you will not lack anything. And then verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Two truths that I want us to uh, learn from this text. And the first is a great promise held out to us here in verse 5. God will give us all the wisdom we need. God will give us all the wisdom we need. You know, there's some things in the Bible that when I study them, I say, I don't understand why this is here. But there are other things in the Bible that we just couldn't live without. And this is one of those. If verse 5 were not in the Bible, I, I don't know how I would go on in the ministry. This is a truth I cannot do without, and neither can you. Look at verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. God will give you all the wisdom you need. Now, why do we need wisdom? 
What's he talking about here? Well, the need here is defined by the context. James closely links this verse to the one just before it by the little word lack. He's been talking about trials and troubles that God uses to test and toughen our faith till we don't lack anything. And then he says, and if you lack wisdom, and he goes on. You see the point? It's the presence of all the trouble. It's the presence of the continuing trials that are sent to test us and to toughen our faith, which point up our lack of wisdom. When trouble comes right after we ask the first question, which is always, why? The very next question is, what do I do now? I don't know which way to turn. Lord, how am I ever going to handle this? Lord, help me. What do I do? In the middle of trouble, we need wisdom. Wisdom from the same God that holds the reins of the trouble. And that's the promise of this text. The God who sends trouble to toughen our faith will give you all the wisdom you need. Now before we go on, let me just point out some things that God is not saying by this promise. Because this promise might get turned into all sorts of distortions. For one thing, he's not promising here to give us some new revelation. He's not saying that we will have some vision, that he will write it in the sky, that we'll have some supernatural message or some angel visitation. No, he promises no voice from heaven, no unusual mysterious signs, no impossible miracles. He doesn't promise any of that, but he does promise he will give us the wisdom we need. Nor does God promise to make decisions for us. I hate to admit it, but we must still dig out all the facts. We must still agonize over the alternatives. We must, must still weigh the biblical principles and consider the consequences of this option and of that option. And we must make the tough decisions. God doesn't take away that responsibility. He's made us in his image. He's given us a will, a decision-making capacity and he leaves us to make that decision. Oh, but in the midst of and through the whole of that process, he promises that he will give us the wisdom we need. God also does not promise to make us infallible here, to guarantee that we'll never make any mistakes. You see, sometimes people use uh, this promise to silence any, any uh, questions about what they're doing, to silence those who would point out the deficiencies in our thinking. But we cannot say, we cannot say, well, the Lord led me, so you don't have any right to question what I'm doing. Oh, yes, you do. Our accountability doesn't disappear. We must listen to our advisors. We must answer our opponents. We must give an account of our choices, and we must learn from our mistakes, because we will make mistakes. But through it all, God promises. He will give you the wisdom you need. You see, for the child of God, who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, who has in his hand and is searching out the Word of God, there's more to the decision-making process than just the sum total of our research and some dumb luck of being in the right place at the right time. 
No, God promises to direct our thinking, and he promises to bring into our lives the right influences and to providentially guide the whole process and to open our minds to his word as we search it out and to enlighten us by the work of his Holy Spirit so that the end result is that we will prove to be wise, so that we will act with wisdom beyond our years, though it will probably be attributed to dumb luck by the world around us. God will give us the wisdom we need. Now, how does God do this? And how do we know that he does this? Well, our text points out three things, all packed into this one little verse, five. Three things that cause us to know that God will give us the wisdom that we need. First of all, because God is a giving God. We know God will give us the wisdom we need because it is his nature to give. Literally, verse 5 says, Let us ask from God the giving one. Now we have to change the word order around to make it good English grammar, but we need to not miss the point here. God is the giving one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? The Apostle writes. God will give us the wisdom we need because that's his nature. He is the giving one, the giving God. That's how we know. Secondly, we know that God will do this because God is generous. The word used here for generous in verse 5 literally means single, single. As one author explained it, not plagued with double vision or any such thing as might diminish clarity of sight. Single-mindedness. Or as another commentator wrote, God gives with exclusive preoccupation. That is, with the mind set upon this task as if there is nothing else to do. This is how the giving God gives, with a selfless, total concern for his children and with an exclusive preoccupation as if he had nothing else to do but to give and to give again to his children. Such giving is a sight to behold, isn't it? Normally see this in brand new grandparents. I hope you're ready for this. You know, Jane and I are about to be grandparents for the first time. We already have little goodies picked up. Is there going to be mail from Washington or what? Nothing better to do than to give with exclusive preoccupation. Oh, dear folks, can you imagine that that's how God is? In the middle of our trouble, we think he's so mean. He's out to get us. He set himself against us. Oh, but here he reveals to us that his real motive is to give us with single-minded, exclusive preoccupation to give to us all the wisdom we need. 
Father, forgive us for questioning your motives. Well, the third thing we see in this little verse is that God gives without finding fault. We know he'll give us all the wisdom we need because he gives without finding fault. The King James Version says, he upbraideth not. The commentator Hybert explains it this way. He does not respond to our petition and then heap insults upon us for asking. He does not offensively recall the benefits already given or rebuke the applicant who asks for more. He does not give in a way which humiliates the receiver. He does not scold because we have inadequately used his former gifts or rebuke us for repeated lack of wisdom. God's generosity is measured by what he designs and not by what we deserve. In other words, he's full of grace. We know that God will give us all the wisdom we need because he is the giving God, because he has single-minded devotion to his children, and he's full of grace. So ask. Ask. That's what it says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Asking is the rule of the kingdom. God has made clear his readiness to help, but he requires asking. Or could we perhaps state that inversely? We only have the wisdom we've asked for. Oh, well, that would explain why we struggle so, why we're tossed about and don't know what to do, and things are always getting, coming up all confused and messed up. Perhaps we've not been asking. One of the greatest prayers in the Bible, I love this portion, the humble prayer of a young man named Solomon, who just was made king, and realizes he's in way over his head. And he asked God for wisdom. Let me read it to you. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3. Let me read a few verses. 1 Kings 3, 7. Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David. Can you imagine following in David's shoes? <laughs> but I am only a little child. And I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. He asked for wisdom. And the answer is found in the very next verse. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be 
Make no mistake. God promises he will give us all the wisdom we need if we will ask. Ask. I know that I use way too many personal examples, illustrations. But bear with me. Let me tell you, share a little bit of my heart with you. One of the very most troubled times in my whole life was back in 1968 when I was trying to do evangelism in the city of Chicago with high school kids. And it was not going well. The organization that I was part of was in deep financial trouble. We were five paychecks behind. And I was failing miserably. All I had ever considered doing was ministry, serve the Lord. And here my ministry is crumbling in my hands. And I was in deep depression. I did not know where to turn. I did not know what to do. And seldom in my whole life have I cried out to God in such agony of soul as I did those days crying myself to sleep often. Lord, show me what to do. Lord, guide me. Lord, give me wisdom. I don't know where to turn. But it seemed the heavens were made of brass. Finally, in my desperation, I looked at the options I had, which were few, and decided to go into the Air Force and learn to fly airplanes. I didn't know what else to do. My faith was so weak, my godly father asked me when I told him that's what I was going to do. He said, well, Bert, how do you know this is God's will for you? And I said to him, Dad, I don't have a clue what God's will is. I would not knowingly disobey him, but I've asked and asked and asked, and I don't have a clue. I'm only doing what seems best to do. Those days still stand out in my mind. Here, 30 years later, as the most agonizing time. Now, I tell you all that so that you'll understand the impact of this next statement I want to say. That decision to go into the Air Force and fly airplanes is about the smartest decision I ever made in my life. God used those Air Force years to completely revamp my faith. There I developed attitudes and skills that still serve me to this day. Later when I went to seminary, I had a job, paid my way through seminary with a wife and two children, a brand new baby, not a good work situation to send your wife off to work. Beyond that, my flying job allowed me to support my family while we planted a church in New Jersey. And even better, along the way, I had opportunity to share my faith with lots of men who probably never would have heard the gospel some other way because they didn't go to church much. Like I said, that decision proved to be the smartest thing I ever did. 
But I didn't have any smarts. I was in agony of soul. I was desperate. I was confused. I was crying out to God. Help me. Show me. But though I felt he had abandoned me, he had the reins firmly at hand all the time. And though I was looking for a kind of answer that I never got, some mysterious, clear, write it in the sky, kind of, this is my will, I never got that. But God did exactly what he promises here. He gave me the wisdom that I need. This morning, I don't care how desperate your situation is. I don't care how confused you might be. I don't care how hopeless things might see. Child of God, the promise of the Father still stands. He will give you the wisdom you need. So ask him. Ask him. Especially in the midst of trouble. Ask. But as you ask, there's a second truth that you must hear from this passage. God expects committed faith. God will give you all the wisdom you need, but God requires committed faith. Now I know that commitment is difficult for us. And us like to commit ourselves too quickly or too deeply. We always like to kind of stand back and fold our arms and see which way things are going before we get on one way or the other. But folks, commitment is not optional with God. This year we have just witnessed a magnificent baseball phenomenon. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa both shattered Roger Maris's single-season home run record, which had stood for, uh, what, 37 years? Mark McGuire with 70 home runs and Sammy Sosa with 66. 136 home runs with two guys in one season. Unbelievable. But you know what? While they hit 136 home runs, did you realize they struck out 325 times? McGuire 155 times and Sammy Sosa 170 times. Do you know why? You can't hit home runs with a wimpy check swing. If you're going to hit the ball out of the park, you have to commit quickly and you have to commit 110%. And if you're not willing to be committed, you're not going to hit home runs. But nobody likes to be so committed, do we? Another parallel in the flying business, that's why they build long runways, you know. 
It doesn't take airplanes two, three miles to get off the ground. They get off the ground in half of that runway. They build wrong runways so that if something goes wrong before liftoff, there'll be time to get stopped. There's a point of no return called refusal speed. After that, you're committed. One way or the other, you're going to fly or crash at the end of the runway. You're committed. Nobody likes to be so committed. We always want an escape route. We want a safety net. We want guarantees up front with insurance that will reimburse us if something goes wrong. But greatness demands unconditional, single-minded commitment beyond the point of no return, full speed ahead. And that's the kind of commitment that God is looking for. That's the message of verses 6 to 8. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Here James suggests two descriptions of what God does not want, the kind of faith that does not please him. God does not want what we might call fad faith. That's the kind of doubting faith which resembles a cork bobbing in the ocean, up and down, over here, over there, blown by the wind this way and then the other. You've seen faith like that, haven't you? People try this religion, whoops, that doesn't work, try this religion, follow this teacher, head after that guru somewhere. Perhaps I'll try Jesus, maybe he's the answer. Oh, no, he's not the answer. Try something else. Fad faith, whatever's in vogue, we try. Pastors get this sometimes from people outside the church. They find out you're a pastor and they say, well, Reverend, say a little prayer for me. People living in utter disregard for God, but just in case, say a little prayer for me. That's not the faith God wants. He wants committed faith. This kind of faith is like trying to get airborne without ever getting above taxi speed. It's real safe, never commits, but also never flies. <laughs> well, you see, if you want to fly, you have to run the engines up all the way as high as they'll go, and you have to get your feet completely off the brakes, and you have to start rolling toward the other end of the runway as fast and as hard as you can go, believing that this airplane will fly. Otherwise, you're going to crash. No little bit here, a little bit there, fad faith. Go whichever way the wind's blowing, but committed. Hope you aren't playing the fad faith game with God. If you are, give it up. He wants your heart, your whole heart. He freely offers his grace. He freely offers his wisdom. He offers his very self to us. But he requires that we come with unconditional commitment. Jesus says it clearly. If you are willing to do the Father's will, then you'll know about me, whether I'm true or not. You see, God doesn't just put himself out there for you to poke around and say, oh yeah, I like this or I don't like this, and then kind of decide whether we want to go with him or not. 
No, he's looking for committed faith. Faith that says, Lord, here I am, body and soul, ready to believe anything you say and to do anything you tell me. Here I am. And then sure enough, he makes his ways. No. Then there's a second kind of faith that God hates. We might call it two-faced faith. Two-faced faith. That's what suggested by the word double-minded in verse 8. Actually, the word is literally two-souled. Two-souled. James may have actually coined that word himself, though it fits our experience so well that after James it's used a lot. The point is, God is not looking for faith that claims to trust God, but at the same time is really trusting myself. Faith that talks a good Christianity, but when the chips are down, really does whatever I please. I can never even read about this two-faced faith without being reminded of my friend Bruce back in New Jersey. I may have told you about him. He's such an interesting character. Bruce loved to bet on football games. And he always impressed you. He was a businessman. He wasn't a rich man, but he made some money. He always impressed you with how much money he won on the football game. Or how much money he lost and, and how gracious he could be about it. You know? Oh, well, lost $500 on that one. <laughs> now, I guess I had known Bruce for at least 10 years before quite by accident one day, I discovered his secret. He always bet on both sides. If he bet three people a hundred bucks a piece that the Seahawks would win, somewhere else he had bet three people a hundred bucks a piece that the Broncos would win. And so he was a big winner to some and he was a magnanimous loser to others. But in reality, He was never committed at all. He just played a game with his friends. And my fear is that's what we do with God. We make big commitments and we make great claims. We ask God for wisdom to do his work and I'll do whatever you say. And at the same time, we very carefully fashion an escape route some way that we can handle it ourselves just in case God doesn't come through. That way we never get painted into an uncomfortable corner. We never get so far out on the limb that we have no other plan if God doesn't do what he promised. It'll be a disaster. We never let ourselves get there because we always have provided a safety net for ourselves. Plan B. And consequently, as we play it safe with God, talking commitment but relying on ourselves, we never get off the ground. We never know what it is to soar to the heights of fellowship and service to God. We just taxi around lamely trying to act like Christians who could fly if we wanted to. 
Folks, God doesn't play that game. He expects single-minded, committed, 100%, past the point of no return, nowhere else to go, all of our eggs in his basket kind of faith. And interestingly, he uses trouble and trials to bring us to that point, to close off every other option to us, to stop every escape route until we have nothing to do but to trust ourselves to him. And then promises he will give us what we need as we ask. In the context of committed faith. Will you trust yourself to him like that this morning? Would you dare to make this kind of commitment? Lord Jesus, here I am. Willing to know you. Willing to serve you. Anytime. Anywhere. Doing absolutely anything. No exceptions. That's the kind of faith God wants. He expects committed faith. So I was talking about our children when we started. You know, it's such a joy to watch young parents. My kids are all grown up now, but I watch you who have little kids. What you wouldn't give for that little guy, for that little daughter. You think for them, you stay several steps ahead of them, you protect them from harm, you hold their little hands while they do something to make sure they make no mistakes that can't be fixed, and then you praise them outrageously for how great they did. With single-minded devotion, you lavish love on those children. But don't you see, that's how God treats us, his children. In our trials, when we're at the end of our rope, he's not. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows precisely what's ahead. He has good plans for us, and they're firmly under control. While we fear that our hands might slip and we might ruin everything, he has his firm fatherly grip on us. And so he says to us out of trouble, if you lack wisdom, ask me. I am the generous giving God who's full of grace. Oh, but then there's the other side of this relationship, the child side. You know, I see you, some of you who have little children, I see you sweep those kids up off the ground and up over your head and actually toss them into the air and catch them in midair. I see you hold them upside down and, and, and swing them around and they, and they squeal with glee. How can they do that? Why aren't they terrified at those antics? Because they trust you unconditionally. 
It doesn't matter if my father throws me up in the air. I'm flying. He'll catch me. It doesn't matter if he hangs me by my heels. He won't drop me on my head. And the minute they stop trusting, the fun's over. Don't you think God loves you just as much as you love those children? You think God's more likely to drop you on your head? But he does want the same unconditional faith. See, we never outgrow that. We're like little children. So no matter what he does with you, squeal with glee. Consider it pure joy. You say, but this is terrible trouble. Nah, he's got it in control. I don't know what to do. Ask him. He does not love you less than you love your own children. He's worthy of your trust. In the midst of all the trouble, he promises to give us all the wisdom we need. But he asks from us that childlike, unconditional trust. Amen. Thank you, dear Father, for your truth. Thank you for these promises. Promises that you've taught me to bet my life on. And thank you that you've never yet failed. Well, Lord, may we know that so much that we're not even afraid anymore. That when we see no safety net, and it seems like we're way out on a limb, and we're so committed that it's certain disaster, Lord, may we simply ask you and trust you and not be afraid. Lord, I don't know where we all need to hear these things and where we need to learn these things, but you do. So take this seed of your word and grow it in our hearts until it produces the fruit that you see fit to produce. We ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let's turn to hymn number 354. 354, Leaning on the Everlasting arms. And let's sing the first and the last stanza. First and last of three, five, four. What have I to fear? 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.